given my own conviction, my conviction that the system of government most conducive to peace, sustainable development, rule of law, and respect for human rights is democracy. These are very worrying times indeed. The world is changing and changing very fast. But are we changing? Are we adapting and trying to make governance more effective and focused on the concerns of the population? Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That was an excerpt from opening remarks by former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, given at the New York Times Athens Democracy Forum in 2017. The concerns he addressed then are, as we all know, even more evident today. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today's Tuesday, January 25th. Moving from 2017 to today, let's talk about the failure in the Senate last week to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the implications for both federal and state actions, as well as some of the investigations and court cases that continue to emerge and develop and shape our politics and our democracy today. Of course, the big thing from this last week is that failure to reform the filibuster and therefore failure to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Thing to note is that pretty much everyone who's been following this expected it to fail, but we were all holding on to hope. You know, Senator Schumer pulled a kind of final move to bypass the filibuster for starting debate, as I talked about last week, which led people again to hope that maybe there'd be a second breakthrough. Maybe negotiations with Manchin and Cinema would move. Maybe there would be some new pressure or some new tactic or some new parliamentary procedure that would allow these bills to move forward. But we, we ultimately saw is that that didn't happen. Cinema didn't budge, neither did Manchin. They joined Republicans in supporting the current filibuster and preventing a vote of cloture to move to pass the Freedom to Vote Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. What we've got now is a moment of quiet. There's been a lot of recriminations, a lot of reflections, but really it's a moment where democracy advocates are regrouping. To be frank, I'm except, expecting a lot of credit and blame game moments in the next week or two. We'll figure out why didn't it pass? Whose responsibility was it? Was it a good thing that we pushed or was it not a good thing that we spent so much energy on passing it? What can we learn from it? A sense-making moment as we should have after failure to pass a piece of legislation. But as I've already been talking to people over the last few days, there have been so many campaigns on so many issues that have failed. And what you do is you take a moment to pause, you take a moment to reflect, you regroup, and you figure out how to move forward. And that's what we're already starting to see and what we'll be talking about and hearing about and tracking in these coming weeks and months. When I think about what am I hearing, what are the implications of the Freedom to Vote Act, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, not being passed. A couple of big things. One, um, the Electoral Count Act, which some Democrats saw as kind of a poison pill narrative that was being floated last week by Republicans saying, well, rather than doing these big pieces of legislation, let's have bipartisan action on something we can agree on. Reforming the Electoral Count Act to ensure we don't have a moment like January 6th. It's a much more narrow and focused piece of legislation. But now we'll see a question. Were those overtures real or just grandstanding? Will there be an attempt to pass a new version of the Electoral Count Act? And if there is, I would expect there would be a lot of pressure to try to put at least parts of the Freedom to Vote Act into the ECA. Whether that will happen or not, 
whether Republicans will threaten to filibuster a expanded ECA remains to be seen. I also expect to see other bipartisan reform efforts floated. Maybe there's a chances and already being seen of new federal guidelines with for states to do things to improve their voting at the state level. Whether there'll be other small reforms breaking apart the Freedom to Vote Act into pieces to try to pass some of them. On the flip side, you're already seeing, and it will just get more intense, a rallying cry for 52, that we need 52 Democratic senators who will then agree to change the filibuster rules and pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in their entirety. That's going to be an attempt to both keep the filibuster and the grandstanding from Republicans in the news, a attempt to rally energy to both defend critical seats like Georgia and Senator Warnock's re-election, and pick up and generate momentum for campaigns in Pennsylvania or North Carolina, the most likely Democratic pickup opportunities. Last but certainly not least, although it's a little farther out, is I would say that this set of votes means that a primary against cinema is increasingly likely, and you're already hearing uh, people very quietly talk about who will that be and how much money will be mobilized. So some implications for Dynamics in the Senate, will Cinema come around and try to support other Democratic efforts to try to balance out, or will she remain in this kind of neutral and tie-breaking role that she has been in? Very different for Cinema than for Manchin, because obviously he comes from a very conservative state where it's unlikely that any Democrat could primary him and win. Very different scenario in Arizona. Speaking of Arizona, the other big thing that we look, because the Freedom to Vote Act failed to pass, is the attention goes back to the states. Will states pass laws that uh, protect and expand the right to vote or that minimize and suppress and make more difficult voting? And Arizona has seen some major developments this week. A bunch of election subversion bills, bills that restrict ballot access are being heard in different committees in the Arizona House and Senate this week. And in, Air in the Arizona House, they introduced one of the most comprehensive attacks on nonpartisan election administration and on voting that has actually really been floated since the 2020 elections. It would eliminate early voting, eliminate no excuse mail voting, would require all ballot counting to be done only by hand. It would give a partisan uh, review of elections by the legislature. And probably the most alarming is that it would let the Arizona legislature just reject the results of an election and allow any elector to request a new election be held. Whether it's something that draconian can pass remains to be seen, but even the fact that it's being introduced is incredibly concerning. We're also seeing more bills being introduced that threaten election administrators with criminal penalties, even for unintended mistakes. We've saw new legislation introduced last week in West Virginia and in Mississippi to that effort. So the kind of criminalizing and polarizing dynamics of how we actually administer our elections are going to continue and something we have to keep paying attention to and pushing back on. Moving from the Freedom to Vote Act to other news affecting our democracy, um, investigations continue. You know, we saw subpoenas for Rudy Giuliani, for legal teams like Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell came from the January 6th House Committee. We saw an invitation to Ivanka Trump to voluntarily come and speak to the committee. Whether that turns into a subpoena when she likely declines remains to be seen, but everyone is expecting it. That slow but steady kind of move forward with the January 6th House Committee. We also, the big deal on Wednesday was that the New York Attorney General alleged in court that the Trump organization, 
his company misrepresented the value of assets to obtain loans and to obtain tax benefits. While they've yet to bring charges, they've now said they have concrete evidence that Trump's company misled banks and tax officials. Uh, this is the civil uh, investigation, separate from the criminal investigation, also underway in New York, although they are sharing information between the two investigations when legally allowed. Of course, Trump and his team have continued to say it's a political witch hunt, but the fact that they're moving to this next level of allegations in court is much more serious. And then the third new kicker, a new entrance into the miscellaneous set of investigations that are defining our democracy, happened yesterday down in Georgia where a Fulton County Superior Court judge has granted a request to impanel a grand jury to investigate Trump's efforts to overturn the Georgia 2020 elections. So what that means is that lets the district attorney in Fulton County, which is Atlanta, to issue subpoenas to compel witnesses to testify and to gather additional evidence. And Fannie Willis, the district attorney, has says that she is expecting to decide whether to bring charges against Trump in the first half of 2022. So right as we are hitting the kind of final strides going to the midterm elections, expect a decision around charges in Georgia to be coming, whether they're seeking to bring charges against Trump to come down this summer. We've also seen other developments on the court side, you know, aside from this investigation in Atlanta that I think are really important to note. Two, I'd lift up, just like we've been waiting to hear and we'll be waiting for a little bit longer around abortion cases. The Supreme Court has also now decided to wade into another really polarizing issue, affirmative action. So the Supreme Court's agreed to hear two different cases involving race and affirmative action. One, that Harvard discriminated against Asian American students by setting a higher standard, and a separate one that the University of North Carolina favored Black, Hispanic, and Native applicants over Asian and white students. So the programs in both have really helped expand diversity in higher education in recent decades, but it's really now a question of will the Supreme Court allow affirmative action in these type of admission standards to continue. In the past, they've defended affirmative action, but again, a question, new conservative majority, will they throw out previous Supreme Court precedent and agree with critics who say that it's unconstitutional? Same question that is lingering over the abortion suits that they are hearing. Likely that decision won't come until next year, though, so it won't impact the midterm elections except the specter of a potential decision coming down. Another one that never gets a lot of attention is our treatment of Puerto Rico, but a big decision, the fe a federal judge approved a bankruptcy plan for Puerto Rico. It could potentially resolve the five-year financial crisis that has been happening in Puerto Rico since the hurricane. And one of the possibilities is whether it ripples over into more conversation and attention to Puerto Rico and a call for statehood, which would, of course, bring two more senators into the U.S. Senate. So tying back to that very early conversation at the top of this session around the implications of the Freedom to Vote Act and the need for more Senate Democratic senators, we'll come back to this question of Puerto Rico and D.C. Statehood would bring new senators into the mix. But that's all for future conversation. For today, that's what we've got for our reviews of kind of democracy this week. Look forward to talking with you again on 10 Minutes on Democracy, and we'll see kind of what develops as we move forward from that showdown over Freedom to Vote Act into a much broader range of conversations and topics in the weeks to come. Take care.